0: Hey, good morning. I hope you're having a good weekend. Uh, let me make sure. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I heard about this guy. He was on a business trip. And uh, he thought, you know, it would be really, really nice if I brought my wife home a little gift. You know, I took a little something home for So he stopped off at a perfume counter at a really nice, one of those kind of swanky stores. And he said, you know, like um, like Target or... Or, you know, Marshalls or TJ Maxx. So he said, you know, I would like to get some just really nice perfume, he said to the clerk. And so she showed him a, a bottle of perfume. He glanced on the bottom of it. There was a little price tag, 120 bucks. And it's kind of small. He thought, well, you know, that's really nice, but I'm not sure. That's that's kind of expensive to be honest with you. That's more than I wanted to spend. Do you have something just a little smaller? So she came back and had just a little a smaller bottle and it looked pretty good. And he thought, well, this will do, until he looked at the price on it. It was seventy-eight dollars. So he's kind of embarrassed, but he said, that's still pretty steep. Um, What else do you have? So she's starting to get a little annoyed with the guy, but she goes back, and she brings out this little bottle. And he looks at it, and it's $35. And he's looking at it, and he says, you know, uh, I guess I'd just like to see something that's just really, really cheap. Do Do you show me something really cheap? And she said, i got just the thing. She reaches on the counter and brings out a mirror. And uh, (laughs) true story. A lot of folks approach their relationship with Jesus kind of in the same way. This isn't anything brand new or that you don't know. I've been there. You've been there. Maybe you're there now. Here's the big idea that we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. Following Jesus means being willing to die to self. And not being ashamed of the Lord. Because His lifestyle, His mission, His calling on us is so... (laughs) In an opposite direction, it's so contrary to what the world teaches and the way that we maybe lived before Jesus. I mean, my whole world was rocked; everything just shifted in this huge way, and and it's almost like I thought, okay, I've got to learn how to live counterintuitively because it, it seems like this is just so different. But as I leaned into that and began to trust His Spirit instead of my own history and experiences and past and the way I think in my flesh, and when I say flesh, I just mean myself, you know, my, my identity. I think, okay, as I, as I kind of stop, as I abandon and move away from that and, and, and just sink into Jesus, something beautiful and amazing began to happen. I thought, wow, this, it's not like this works, this, I guess referring to Christianity or the gospel, but it's Him in me, and it works. And I found that that's still true. You know, years later, when I submit and surrender myself, as risky as I know that feels, it's just incredible the things that I see unfold and happen in my life. So, how do we take this big idea and this, this truth that I hope we walk out today and we think, okay, I learned one thing. I, I was reaffirmed in this in this way uh, today. So, how am I going to plug that in my life? Here's our application. We are called to be like previews. We're, we're those things, you know, when you go to the movie and you see, oh, this is what's coming up, and it just shows these real quick things like, oh, this is what it's going to be like. That's us. We're, we're this way. So God's calling us uh, in that to be previews of the coming kingdom of God. We're glimpses of heaven. We're pictures of the future. And in order to, to For that to to be genuine and for that to be a reality. And this part you may not have heard and maybe nobody told you. When you were at youth camp, when you were at VBS, when you were wherever you were, you know, maybe a friend talking to you over a cup of coffee and you trusted Christ, sometimes we leave out something and it's a big part of the gospel. And I think there's a lot of people I know and I myself was not living in victory until I found this part out. So I want you to get this. We're willing to sacrifice for God's glory. We're willing to sacrifice. 500 years ago, there was a a man of tremendous influence who is credited with beginning the Reformation. There were others who came before him, guys like Swingley and Melanchthon and and, uh, uh, Calvin and others, But this is a guy who nailed it, literally, and in in so many ways. uh, His name was Martin Luther, and he said this. I want you to get this. Uh, A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. A little over 70 years ago there was another man who had a powerful influence and if you've never read his book The Cost of Discipleship I encourage you to do so it'll it'll spin you around This guy his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he said this and This is going to shake you up all right listen to this Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It's pretty powerful. Now there's a risk... That's involved in even talking about this subject today. You know, and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago the reality uh, about spiritual warfare. And I know every time I get close to this topic that we're going to look at today, I'm headed into spiritual warfare. I can't explain that. I know that sounds mystical, or you think, our pastor, the older he gets, the spookier he gets. Well, I just tell you, this has been something I've noticed my entire life. Some subjects I can talk about, and, and maybe the devil would look over and go, oh, yeah, you can, yeah, that doesn't really bother me. But when I get to the cross, and when I get to being crucified with Christ in order to know his new life, something begins to happen. So I'm telling you this ahead of time because if you embrace what I'm teaching today, and if you surrender yourself, into this. Be prepared. Amazing things you never thought could happen in your life its going to happen. But there's going to be opposition. There's going to be some pushback uh, to that as well. So there's the risk. There's, also, there's this risk that we somehow might think, or I might miscommunicate, that salvation is something you earn, You know, that you're working on this, or you've got to do enough of the right things. I kind of had that idea, even though I'd heard, you know, oh, it's all by grace, and it's free, and it's the gift of God, not of yourselves. And I kind of heard that, but I'm just telling you what I saw lived out, or what I saw modeled for me from a lot of people I knew who were Christians before I wasn't, is that they would tell me that part, but then the fine print is that there was you know, a a lot of responsibility or obligations or, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's free. However, you need to read this list of things that you got to do and don't do and all of that. So I I don't want to communicate that because that's not the gospel. That's not what this is all about. This passage we're going to look at in just a couple of minutes is one of the few teaching passages in Mark. If you'll notice, if you've been hanging in here with this series, longest series I've ever done in my life, um, but I'm just, my heart's still in Mark. Um, but most of that are stories. You know, most of that are these moments, these events, these, these historical times in Jesus' life where we see something happen, and then we draw these lessons out of it. Or oh, they're parables, you know, it's kind of like that. This, today, is just a, Jesus is like, hey, guys, I just got to teach you something. I'm just going to tell you. Just flat out. I'm not going to make a story about it or say it's like a man, you know. And they go, okay, the man is, you know, and they kind of figure that out. And sometimes they miss it. He goes, this is so big, it's so important. I'm just going to tell you, flat out, straight up. This is this is what I want you to know. So what Jesus is is going to say, and what we're going to hear in just a second is is that salvation is quite the opposite of us trying. Check it out, trying to bring my best self to Jesus. I kind of thought that. I even told a friend of mine once when he, he just confronted me, and he had been just speaking into my life, but he confronted me with the claims of Jesus and said, hey, and I said, you know what, just kind of not ready for that. Got some things I got to take care of. And, uh, and what I was thinking is like, I got to get myself in shape. I got to get ready. You know, if you have ever gone to a wedding or maybe a class reunion or something, and leading up to it, you think, "Oh, I'm not ready right now. I got to get ready. I got to. I got to go get on Weight Watchers. I got to You know, I got to do this. I got to start working out. I need a tan. I need. You know, and you just start doing. Oh, I got to get my hair. And you kind of. I kind of thought that Jesus was sort of that way. Yeah, I'm really drawn toward him, but I'm not ready. That's not what this is about. I want you to know, that's, so this is a brand new idea. It's not bringing your best self to Jesus and go, okay, I don't know. This, I know I'm not good enough yet, but it's all I got, and here I am. And you know, This is not that. This is going to be a brand new idea for the people who are listening and probably for some of us, for the whole world. It, it's so revolutionary that we still resist it. I mean, I know Christians who have been Christians for years who will still kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm going to go do something anyway, just in case I'm going to add a little something to this. And uh, he's just like, no, you still, you missed the mark. You you missed the whole point of that. Okay, so there's also a risk that somehow we would downplay, you know, that, that I wouldn't say it uh, well enough where what Jesus said is Real and just ignore that completely. I see this a lot. You know, my my hope this morning before we step back out of this room is to understand what Jesus is saying in this little part of Mark chapter 8. And for all of us to leave with a grasp of what we're supposed to do about it. Uh, So the question... The cost of living, the cost of discipleship, the cost of eternal life. The question is this, and this is my premise what does eternal life cost? What does that cost? Let's read Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read 34 through 37. Now, I, I left the Bible. I'm using the New Living Translation during this series just to freshen it up, come at it from a little different, you know, kind of perspective or spin. I didn't bring it with me today, okay? I brought uh, the ESV, which is kind of my go-to. So what you see on the screen may sound a little different than the way I read it, but it's okay, all right? So you can you can get both. Verse 34 says... And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and he said to them if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life for what can a man give in return for his life whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels now, more than one person came to Jesus with this question, what do I have to do to get eternal life? What do I got to do? And you, you wonder that? You ever see a deal? You ever see something? And you immediately think, all right, what do I got to do to get that? What's, what's on my side? What's, and you start kind of measuring and adding it up and trying to figure it out. And Jesus never answered them and said, oh, eternal life? Nothing. You don't, have to, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. Uh, I've got all that covered, and, and you don't have to do anything at all, so don't worry about it. Now, some of you just, you just reacted a little bit. You know, that was just like, uh, I, I think you're wrong. I think he did say that. No, he didn't say that. You see, we we confuse, we mix up something. We think, okay, salvation is free, and it is the gift of God. Absolutely. But there's, there's something attached to that. What do you do when somebody gives you a gift? You receive that, right? And you make that choice. You determine if that gift becomes yours or not. So even though it's this present that God gives us, there's clearly you know, some response to be taken on our part in accepting the gift. So you, you, have, you have that, that choice. So here we are uh, at this place in this narrative, and Jesus is working his way towards Jerusalem. And he's in Caesarea Philippi, which is really an interesting place because that's where Herod had, you know, put his palace and had denied Christ and all these pagan religions and had, had you know begun to flourish. And it's almost like Jesus has said, I'm gonna pick this I want to redeem this place. And sometimes God will take places in your life. I don't know how far I want to go with this, uh, whether they're geographical places. I'm going to put it more in terms, uh, it, it it may be, he may give you back a place that you thought was lost, but I know he'll give you places in your heart that you had given up on and maybe you sealed off. And it's, it's, you know, like if I said, Jesus, I'm just going to give you my heart. My heart is your house now, and you're going to live here. However, there's this one closet I'm going to keep the key to, and I'm just going to keep that Like I just got some stuff in there I really don't want you to see, and I'm kind of embarrassed about that. And maybe I still enjoy the things. So I'm just going to keep that one little closet, but everything else, every room, every hallway, the kitchen, the bathrooms, all of it, the garage, it's all yours, except for that little closet. That little closet itself. That's where we kind of tend to hold that back, and you think, why am I not getting victory? And why do I not understand the deeper things of Christ? Because of that that tendency that we have. God wants to give you, He wants to redeem every room, every place in your life, every memory. All of that, He wants to restore and make it new again. And he, He will do that. So he's preparing. Jesus is moving forward. He's preparing his disciples for his approaching death. Uh, he, he's fully aware what's, what's ahead of him. And Mark uses this part of his gospel to prepare us, you know, the readers, uh, for the same thing. Jesus is about to pay the cost for us to be able to inherit eternal life. So what does that require of me? What, what, what do I do next? What, how is that? Well, the answer is in verse 27. The cost of living requires that we know who He is. That we know who Jesus is. One of the main goals of the gospel writers, all of them, is to plainly tell us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He, he is who everybody had been looking forward to and waiting for. And so God, it is so beautiful. He tells us four times and from four different perspectives. You know, we, uh, we, we watched the race this morning. We came, we tried to cheer people on. Maybe some of you were running. A lot of us are on the sidelines, you know. And, and we, we watched that. Now, it's a little tricky during the week uh, at Kingston right here because we're in a curve, and we've had a lot of accidents here. Now can you imagine that if I were standing here and you were standing across the street, say in front of the fellowship house, and maybe somebody else is down here in front of Bleak House and somebody over here maybe is in front of the Methodist church, and there's this big crash. You know, and the officer gets there and says, who saw this? And and four of us from those places, we all raise our hands and say, I saw it. They go, tell us what happened. You see, we all saw the same thing, and we would tell about the same event, but we'd tell it from our perspective. And, and the officer would get a pretty good picture, a really good idea, because he could see it from all that. That's, that's what the Gospels do for us. Now, we've chosen Mark for our study, but the other Gospels are doing the same thing. They want us to know Jesus is really who he said he was, and he's the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. He's special. He's unique. He's the monogonese. He is the only begotten of the Father. So eternal life, heaven or hell, uh, your whole salvation centers around this question: Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus is—he's—he's he's headed for Jerusalem. That's where he'd be crucified. His disciples really need to get this. They need to understand who Jesus is. Lots of people had opinions back then. They still do today. You ever have spiritual conversations with your friends and you hear all these ideas about who Jesus is? Well, there were lots of them back then. And people are trying to guess. And, And some of them are kind of worn out and they're thin and they don't make a lot of sense. Well, he was a great man if he's a great man and he claimed to be god i don't think that's really great i think he's you know like c.s lewis said he's either the lord he's a liar or he's a lunatic i mean i'm god you're a really good man you're wrong about the god thing but i mean you know you can't that just that's kind of hard to reconcile was he elijah was he a good teacher i heard that so much you know Oh, I think Jesus I had somebody talking to me. It wasn't that long ago, actually, and, and said, oh, I respect your faith, and I, I know you're a person of faith, and that you're religious, and I always, does that kind of get you when somebody says you're religious, and I think, no, I'm not, you know, and I just, I want to be defiant and go, no, I'm not, I'm not religious, but I do love Jesus, and he loves me, and I am a part of a local fellowship, and, just, I, do, and I guess I am. I guess I'm religious. I should probably just wear that and be okay. Okay. Um, it's, uh, but this whole business about being a good teacher, I think, that, what? He never said, I've come here to be a good teacher. I think, no, nah, I've had good teachers. No, nah, there's not Jesus. You know, what was it? Was he just another prophet? Was he Elijah? Some people were going way out there saying, I think it's one of the old guys reincarnated. And I think, oh, that's come back around in style a little bit too. You know, what if he were just another prophet? Just another one of the guys, you know, that, that had been that lined up. That would make his death on the cross one of the most pitiful, pathetic, tragic things I've ever heard of. If that's all he was. If he was, it was just the death of another prophet like all those prophets gone by. But if he were really the anointed one of God God's son, then his death would have all kinds of implications. It would bring a whole nother meaning. You know, I could offer to die for the world. You know, there are certain people I would die for. Some of you probably wouldn't die for I just tell you, some of you I like some. Of you, no, I'm kidding, kind of. No, I'm. I am. I'm just trying to be even funnier. But um, but there's people I would die for in a heartbeat, and you would too, right? And and, and, and we. we can, but if I said I'm going to die for the whole world, I just die for everybody. It doesn't really work that way, does it? Because I'm just me. I mean, it would be noble. It would be, you know, it probably be in the papers. But it wouldn't change the fact. That nothing would happen to you spiritually. We would still need a Savior. Because in a sense, I mean, I could die like saving your life, you know, like throwing myself on a, or stepping in front of a bullet, all of that. Kind of, That's, but I can't die for you to save you. There's nothing in me that has the ability and the capability to do that. There's no competency in me. A lot of human blood has been spilled through years and years and years to to give people freedom, to make lives better, to to do all kinds of things. But if the blood that was spilled on the cross is divine blood, if it's the blood not only of a human but of God himself, then it's perfect blood. And it means life for every person who would accept that. Did you ever wonder where all those other ideas about Jesus' identity ever came from? I mean, I've never been challenged, really, about any other historical figure that I can think of. That's Shakespeare. Was he really a playwright? I don't know. I mean, people tell us he was, but what if he wasn't? What if he was really something? You know, we don't ever even ask those questions. You know, we never think about, was Caesar, was he really an emperor? What if he was? I mean, we don't even we think, well, of course he was. Listen, only Jesus' identity is, is challenged. I mean, just want you to think, I just had that thought the other day, and I just thought, that's so funny that, uh, that only when it gets to him, and I don't know who first thought up all these different ideas, maybe he was this, oh, I think Jesus was... And we just think about it. I don't know who suggested that and, and, you know, came up with it. But you're just false ideas. And I think the only reason you get opposition with him and you don't with anybody else is because Satan's behind that. I mean, if I were not a believer right now, I would think, you know, that is kind of weird. I think you're on to something. There's something unique about Jesus. Why is that? How did he fulfill all those prophecies? It's just virtually impossible for one person to do that. Not only prophecies about his life, but about his birth and even before that. And I think he could never have arranged all that. These things drew me and began to to draw me into Jesus. And all these things that people would say about him and these ideas just started sounding silly and weak. Every person who remains convinced that Jesus is just another guy, just a good person, will be kept from heaven because they they can't see who Jesus really is. And if you ever noticed that no one's identity is ever questioned, but His. Do you know who Bob Beeman is? Not the one here in Knoxville. This is a guy who set the oldest standing Olympic record. In Mexico City, October 18th, 1968, Bob did a long jump, did a long jump, jumped a long jump, I don't know the verb, 29 feet, two and a half inches. God, that's crazy. So all these years later, 11 Olympiads, what, what you know, no one has ever beaten that in the Olympics. And most records are beaten, you know, in a year, two years, three years, four, whatever. That one's still still there. Listen, if you make a list of guys like Bob, great women of history, people of the past, teachers, political leaders, military heroes, uh, scholars, discoverers, athletes, all those people... When you're standing before God's throne, he's not going to quiz you about those. You're not going to stand there, and you're really nervous thinking, what's the next question? I had to defend a thesis for the last degree I got, and there was this panel of people sitting at a table, and they're all dressed up in their suits and dresses, and, and I'm standing there thinking, what are they going to ask me? What are they going to ask me? Because it's so broad, I think they can ask me anything they want. And sometimes I think we feel like that, and like God's going to say, How far did Bob jump in 1968? See, today, if he were to ask that, you'd go 29 feet, two and a half inches, boom, let me into heaven, you know? And you think, whoa, and you're going to be in heaven and you're going to see Aunt Wanda and you're going to see, you know, Uncle Bill and they're going to say, how'd you get into heaven? Oh, Dan told us about Bob and that was the question they asked. I just happened to, ah, so, you know, glad I was up on my trip. God's not going to ask you about any of those people, He doesn't care about any of those people but here's this pop quiz in Mark in chapter 8. And I'm pretty sure that same question's going to be on the final, just heads up. <laughs> you know, in John 9, Jesus had healed a man. He'd been blind from birth. No memory of ever seeing anything. And as a reward for his testimony, when all this began to happen in his life, the religious leaders throw the guy out of the synagogue. <laughs> I think, what did you do? I just got healed. I'm sorry, I can see. Well, out you go, you know, it was just kind of just a crazy system, so they throw the guy out, and when you're thrown out of the synagogue, you're pretty much thrown out of the community, the whole Jewish community, so you're, you're homeless in every way, the man had never seen Jesus, isn't that ironic, you know, he gives him a sight. he'd never seen Jesus, all he knew, that he just simply, he said this, you know, Jesus healed me, uh, and then he disappeared in the shuffle, and all, all I can tell you, because they're interrogating him, because they're really after Jesus, he said, all I know is this. And this is beautiful. You know the story. It's just so simple. He goes, all I, all I know, all I know, all I can tell you is I was blind. Now I can see. What, what do you want me to say? That's, so Jesus had heard they had thrown him out. And Jesus finds the guy. I love Jesus. I just love his personality. I love the way he does and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And in verse 36, he said, who is he, sir? This guy's so open. You see how his heart's just Not just his eyes are open now. He's so vulnerable. He wants to know what's going on. The man asked, tell me so that I can believe in him. And Jesus said this, you have seen him. He's blind. Now he sees. And Jesus says, you have seen him. I just, uh, okay, I'm sorry. In fact, he says this, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you right now. This is in your Bible. Um, And the man said, just like that, he just looks at Jesus. He says, I believe. I believe in you. And he worshiped him. So who do you say that Jesus is? That's a question that has to be answered in every person's heart. Your mama can't answer that question. Your daddy can't. Your pastor can't. It's you. It's your question. Without knowing who Jesus is, there's no salvation. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name in heaven or on earth by, um, among us who, by which we can be saved. So we, we know who he is, and then we take that next step. We accept who he is, what Jesus is. And this is in, you know, if you, in the next several verses. The thing that's so cool about Jesus, he never fit into anybody's mold. You know, nobody saw Jesus coming, and they would kind of plan, and go, there, and he would go over there, you know, and it's just like, oh, we, we don't know. You know, we don't know. We can't. We can't stop him because we've never had anybody like Jesus before. And so many people had had their ideas about this is what Messiah is going to be like. It kind of reminds me of all those people who talk about the second coming, you know, and they lay it all out and go, This is how Jesus is going to come. And some of them are so bold, they even lay out dates. And the dates come and go, and so they have to rewrite their book and go, oh, yeah, well, you know what? I misinterpreted this, so now, no, it's 1996. No, it's not 20, no, it's, it's going to be 2020. Yeah, yeah, because you see, now you do the man, you hold your head like this, and, and I just think, stop it, you know. But, so it was kind of like that back then. Oh, is going to be like this. And everybody had these ideas. Jesus didn't do it like anybody thought. So, in this passage, you know, Peter has just confirmed and had it affirmed back to him that Jesus is the promised one of God who was to come. Out of all the goofy stuff that Peter says and does, uh, I identify with this guy so much. uh, He gets this right, but then he messes it up. It's like, Peter, stop talking, and you're going to be, stop talking. So Jesus begins to just real frankly, real, you know, he tells his disciples, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. I mean, he's, he's on his way to Jerusalem, so he starts rolling out all this information. So Peter is not good with that. He doesn't like this idea, so he rebukes Jesus. He chastises J- Jesus and said, no, you've got it all wrong. That's never going to happen, not as long as I'm here. You know, he gets a kind of braggy about it. Peter admonishes Jesus Jesus just turns like that, and he reprimands Peter because Peter is still in the flesh. Now, he knows who Jesus is. He just said it out loud. First person, Peter's confession. He says, I, I know exactly who you are. You're Messiah. Everybody gets quiet, and they look at Peter, and then they look back at Jesus like, is that right? He says, yeah, that's right. But then Jesus, yeah, Peter gets back in his flesh He goes, well, that may be true, but here's how we're going to deal with this. This is what some of us do. You know who Jesus is, but then you don't accept that. You don't accept who he is. It's one thing to say, and I grew up in a family of people who said, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I know, I believe he's, and they would check off every box about the information about Jesus, but never submit their heart and their life to him that's the difference I'm talking about. So, don't try to force Jesus into your mode. Don't make him try to fit what you kind of think. You know, he's living his life on purpose, to fulfill a purpose. So, don't try to limit him to some picture that you once saw in your, you know, Bible. (laughs) You know, the blonde Jesus with the 70s hair and and the beard and the blue eyes. I think I doubt he looked like that, but we kind of, you know, especially those of us, you know, white people, we made him kind of look like us. Uh, you, can't, you can't really do that. Listen to what he candidly says about himself and accept it. Just accept it. That's part of the cost of what Jesus, you know, the life that he has to offer us. And then there's this big thing that I think sometimes we stop right there. So I'm going to take it one step further, and that's that we identify with who he is. This is Jesus. In this passage we just read, he is spelling out very plainly, explicitly, this is what it means to be my disciple. Now I don't know if you mark this out of your Bible, or you just skip over it, uh, or we just think, I don't think that means what it says it means. And, I know, I understand, it's hard, it's hard now. Uh, it's, it's not enough to merely agree that Jesus is who he said he is. It's not enough to accept the kind of Lord that he, that he is. Are you ready? The cost of being a disciple also ad- means identifying with him in an intimate, personal, sacrificial way. For a long time, nobody told me that. Jesus makes it clear that if we're going to follow him, we identify with him. Now, how do we do that? He tells us. Jesus says there's two things. The first one, you're not going to like. <laughs> he says you've got to deny yourself. And you can just write self in big capital letters, S-E-L-L. Deny self. Not deny yourself of something you know, like, well, I'm going to stop doing that. And I'll stop doing, and I'll just deny myself. You know, this. I think God would like me better if I didn't eat cheeseburgers and donuts all the time. You know, I'm just going to do that for Jesus. And I, and, I, and I said, no, no, no. You missed the point. Lots of people denied themselves. That's this is deeper. This is when we don't try to impress Him, or so we don't just you know get dressed up and and, and try to make God think. You know, this is when we actually, literally abandon our old self, and that we are crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, identifying with Jesus on the cross. This is where we must get into the throne room of our lives and we yank ourselves down, we drag ourselves off the throne. Maybe you've never done that. You drag yourself out of the room and you put King Jesus up on the throne. That's what this is. I know, most Christians are not familiar with this huge, it's a principle, you know, of being crucified. Because it's not taught, it's not talked about, except in sentimental ways and in gospel songs. But Jesus is talking about the necessity of letting go of our self-sufficiency in order to follow Him. The disciple willingly surrenders his or her life. And That means all the big decisions and the small things, and the wishes and the efforts and all of that. This type of surrender—it's not the same. It's not self-abasement or, or all of that. It's not false humility, and it, it, it's not always living in shame and saying, oh, "I'm just a sinner." And God—he doesn't—he doesn't want you. He's not impressed by that. This is the exchanged life. This is where I trade my old life for his new life. This is the crucified life. The second thing he said to do is, after you've denied self, he said, take up your cross and follow me every day. Now, when Mark wrote this gospel for first century Christians, a lot of them would immediately be able to picture this. Many would see their own brothers and sisters in Christ as they had been crucified along these roads, uh, and, and they would do it in public places and sometimes just, just line them up like telephone poles, just like utility poles uh, along the road. You'd see Christians crucified all along the, the way. People who had been, you know, and, and each one would have to carry that beam, that top part. You know, we see that in Scripture where, where uh, Simon of Cyrene, who was Alexander and Rufus' dad, you know, they made him carry that. You remember that Jesus had to, to, to do that? That was, everybody did that. So Jesus takes that mental imagery and he says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me to the place of torture. Now who's in? <laughs> now how many people go, yeah, you know what, I was going to do that, but I didn't know about that part. Uh, I'm, they would understand what, it, what Jesus was saying. They knew what it meant to lose their lives, to get Jesus' life. And we too often, we, we, we take this word from Jesus, we turn it into a cliche, we turn it into a song or something. And, and I want you to know that having a real active two-year-old, that's not your cross. Having a car that breaks down all the time and you just say, that car, I just got to fix it again, this is just my cross. You know, having really bad seasonal allergies right now, it's just my cross to bear. A nagging spouse, a terrible job, an awful boss, a mortgage on your house. It's just my cross. It's not your cross. Jesus is talking about identifying with him in the fullest extent to lose your very life. No strings attached. Here, I'm yours. That's what he did. And that's what we do. Just like, you remember the time that Mary broke that ointment, that bottle, and she poured it out over Jesus? She couldn't get it back in the bottle? And everybody's mad about it, and Judas is thinking, oh my goodness, do you know how much that cost, and we'll never get it? You know, But she carried around the, the fragrance of Jesus in her hair for days and days. This is when our very inner selves, the seed of our emotions and our thoughts and everything about us, is just poured out and handed over to God, never to be gotten back again. That's the cost of discipleship. That's what Jesus and Luther and, and, and Bonhoeffer and all, Hudson Taylor, that's what, everybody, that's what this is about. Maybe you didn't know this part. And that brings us to this place where we're not ashamed of who he is. I think maybe part of Peter's problem here is that he just kind of was prideful because he didn't want to be part of a losing team. Now, we could say something, we could tell Peter a thing or two, right? You know? We could say, yeah, I'm vol for life. And we have winning seasons. We do really well. And we have some not so great seasons. You know what? We, we, we're going to stay in. Peter didn't want to be, he said, no, you know what? I'm a bandwagon guy. I'm going to pull for, you know, somebody else. I'm going to, you know, go for this. And I don't know how good your bracket's doing. I'm hanging in there pretty good. And I have a deep confession to make, a dark secret that I just feel compelled that I should tell you. In my bracket, I had Purdue beating Tennessee. And so I'm still in. I'm in number one. I'm sorry. You see, I bailed. (laughs) I bailed. Now, somebody would be mad at me forever, and I'm kind of, you know, but that's not what he's talking about. Peter's just like, I want to be on the winning team. I just want to win. So a lot of us, we're going to shun this idea of following the Lord whose idea of winning seems to be crucifixion? I don't think so. If you're always talking about losing, what in your appropriate place for us to remember that Jesus' plans are not like our plans. He doesn't do things the same way. So what? I'm crucified. I'm a dead guy anyway, so I don't have a dog in the fight. I don't have to make that decision. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. So Jesus, you want to do it differently? Okay. I'll just follow you. We'll just do it your way. 2 Timothy 1.12 says this, that is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, everybody. I mean, sometimes I think the world wants us to be embarrassed about our faith. And they stumble over just how foolish you know the cross seems to be. Folks, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to be ashamed of. And I hope they just set you free to live tomorrow the same way you would live today. To live tomorrow, just like you do on Sundays. So let me wrap this up. Let me land. Okay? There is no bait and switch in Jesus' words. A lot of us present the gospel and it's kind of like buying a car and they just tell us all this and they don't tell us about that, you know. There's no bait and switch here. Jesus invites people to assess up front what it costs to follow him, to be a disciple. And We've read that today clearly. There's no fine print. There's no, in the Greek, this really means that there's no hidden fees. There's no tricky language. You need to take an honest to goodness look at what his expectations of us are. Many don't even know who he is. Many, they know who he is, but they don't want to accept what he is. Many folks are just ashamed. Let me ask you a tough question. Where are you? Where are you? Where do you want to be? You've tried and tried in your own efforts, in your own flesh, your own self. You need a Savior. I'm not talking about paying for eternal life. Jesus already covered that. I'm talking about accepting what He brings to us on the cross there's an old hymn at the cross I was working in the yard yesterday and I, and I got it stuck in my head and it shows this depth and this understanding it'll come back to some of you there's this line that says this but drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe here Lord I give myself away. It is all that I can do. That's all. It's all he's asking you to do. Will you exchange your life for his? Will you give yourself away and receive Jesus?